probably aware that this passage in many ways is notoriously difficult um, for a number of reasons. And, but that probably underlines and indicates something of its importance. The passage has direct relevance to certain contemporary issues that have preoccupied the church. In particular, the ordination of women to eldership and to the ministry. He explains why a church like this um, has women as an essential part of a pastoral team, but does not have women as preachers on a Sunday. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't deal specifically with those subjects, other passages do, but it lays a necessary foundation for understanding God's will concerning them. Now, this church's position, and many like it, is against the contemporary flow of things. And that raises questions, of course. Should we simply go with the flow? Or should we strive to follow what the Bible teaches, wherever that may lead us? And I'm in no doubt as to which of those things we do. And we are able to observe tragically what happens in churches where the Bible is given authority only when it fits in with contemporary culture and behaviour. Now, you will know that in this letter, Paul is answering questions that have been submitted to him by the Corinthian believers or issues that have been raised by what is happening among them. He's been discussing a Christian's freedom. There were some at Corinth who had been quoting what was, it would seem, a common Christian saying. Everything is permissible. You get that in chapter 11, the 10 rather than verse 23. But some quoted it in a way that was liable to bring Christian conduct into disrepute. And so Paul emphasizes uh, how forced it is by saying everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. And it's in the light of that way of dealing with things that he moves on to this subject of behaviour in church services. By church services, when believers come together to worship God and to hear his word. And a particular problem had raised its head after Paul had left Corinth. The issue was of women's head covering when the church gathered together for worship. Now that seems pretty remote from us this evening, doesn't it? But what is not remote from us is the teaching Paul gives about the proper relationship of men and women in the church, in the body of Christ, and particularly when we come together to worship him. Apparently, there were women at Corinth who took part in public worship by praying and prophesying, verse 5 of this chapter. Now, Paul is going to censure this in chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. But Paul wisely deals with only one subject at a time. Now, what was prophecy in the early church? Well, prophecy in the early church was a declaration of a word, a message from God, not necessarily about the future, but how Christians should behave in the present. 
Prophecy is inspired speech. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke the word of God, what God wanted his people to hear, to their generation. Now, prophecy was especially helpful to the church when believers didn't have in their hands the New Testament. And preaching from the Bible replaces, essentially, the need for such ministry today. Let's take, for example, meat offered to idols. Now, you know how Paul deals with that earlier in this book, in chapter 8. But when 1 Corinthians wasn't available, how were believers to know what they were to do about meat offered to idols? It would be in such a situation that God would give a word of understanding to one of the prophets. Now, what had disturbed the church in Corinth was that some women took part in these two ways we've mentioned without having their heads covered. Now, that's why I feel that the heading that the New International Version gives to the passage is helpful. Propriety in worship. When we observe a propriety, we recognize that there is a way of doing things that is acceptable to others and which we ought not to ignore unless there's a good reason for doing so. It's the difference really between what is permissible and what is beneficial. Now, debates about this passage in the latter part of the 20th century revolved around the question of hats. And the covering of the head in the first century, or the wearing of a veil, was vastly different from wearing a hat today. And it's rather interesting to me that both views and culture have changed. Let me just tell you. 1969, I was having a sabbatical. I was away from home in Cambridge, staying in Tyndale House, which some of you may know of. And uh, whilst I was there, I was called to become pastor of the chapel. And every morning we had coffee. And at coffee, the news had got round that I was moving from London, and the secretary that is the woman secretary who looked after the uh, correspondence of Tinder House, she said to me, which church are you going to in Edinburgh? I said, Charlotte Chapel. Hats, she said. I said, what do you mean, hats? She said, I was there on holiday and I've never seen so many hats. I'm looking for them this evening. And I don't want to get sidetracked on, but that was the particular issue that many debated through this passage. Now, the background to this passage is important. You will know that Corinth was a, a city that was known for its immorality. One of the marks of a prostitute in Corinth was an uncovered hedge, although Paul does not give that as a reason for what he says. When a woman covered her head in the Orient, she was given respect and shown courtesy. And in Eastern countries today, women will not go around without their heads being covered. And there were some Christian women in Corinth who ignored the propriety of head covering, and they probably gave a false impression about what Christian freedom means. And their exercise of their freedom, everything is permissible, could become a stumbling block to others in understanding what Christian faith and life are all about. 
If a wife did not cover her head in public, that is the wife, it was a disgrace. She was viewed as someone who did not recognize her relationship to her husband. And interestingly enough, in verse 16, Paul says, some of you may be contentious about this matter. Now, let's say again, what is important in this passage is not so much the head covering, but the establishment Paul gives of principles of the relationship of men and women in the church. Paul is often accused of being critical and unsympathetic to women. I think that's unjust. There are always clear reasons behind what he says. So let's see what his first concern is. His first concern is with propriety. Now what we've said is that propriety is what is acceptable in society or what in the Christian church Christians have come to recognize as being acceptable behavior. Look in verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. The duty of Christians in every generation is to test what they're taught. If it's from God, they are to accept it. If it isn't, well then they must exercise their judgment as to how how helpful it is. But we're instructed to test everything. But woe betide if we test something and then reject it because it doesn't fit in with our culture or what we regard as pleasing to us. Notice Paul mentions in verse 16 the practice of the churches. Over the course of the years, Christian believers come to decisions about the application of biblical principles. Now, their answers may not be infallible, but they're not to be despised. Now, how does Paul deal with this hot potato? I guess that if you've been listening to 1 Corinthians being read aloud... Uh, you would be sitting on the edge of your seat if you were one of the, the women concerned and perhaps one of the husbands of these women. And Paul's way of dealing with it is to go back to first principles. What he says is that the covering of a head was not the important thing, but the recognition of the principles behind the application of a principle that they were doing. So our task is to discover the principle see what its application was to first century Corinth, and then to apply it to ourselves. Now, as I discern it, there is a threefold argument. First of all, there is a proper order in human relationships. And it is an order that inevitably means subordination. Subordination is a difficult word. I can't find a better one. God is a God of order. That's implicit in all Paul says, and he says it later on in 1 Corinthians. God is a God of order. You see it in creation. If God was not a God of order, the creation would not be operating to our benefit. You see it in redemption. And because God is a God of order, there is an appropriate way for us to behave in God's world, and especially as God's people. And then Paul does something very dramatic. 
I find it exciting. He lifts the whole subject onto the highest level by beginning with the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul always takes every problem to the person of the Lord Jesus and says, what does the person of the Lord Jesus and his work have to say about this issue that we're discussing? That is always the right thing to do. He handles every problem by its relationship to the Lord Jesus. What does he say then? Well, look at verse 3. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is subordinate to the Father. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, that is, the Father. Our Lord Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. Now, our first reaction to what Paul writes about our Lord Jesus may be one of surprise, because he's plainly equal with the Father, being of one essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Paul draws attention to this subjection or subordination of the Lord Jesus to the Father, because he wants to affirm the nature of a woman's subjection to man. Verse 3, man is subordinate to Christ. The head of every man is Christ. Now, we have no problems with that. We call Jesus Lord. When I call him Lord, I'm saying that I'm subordinate to him. I subject myself to him, gladly. Woman, in turn, verse 3, is subordinate to man. The head of the woman is man. Now, that doesn't sound so straightforward, does it? In our society that is anti-authority. But let me just remind us of how clearly the headship of man is indicated in the Bible without it drawing attention to it. Man's headship was indicated by his being created first. Eve was created for Adam, not Adam for Eve. When it came to the naming of the woman, God gave Adam that responsibility. And in the Old Testament, naming, and in the New Testament, naming is a mark of leadership. When God chose to give a name to the human race, he called it man. When sin entered the world, the primary accountability for sin was not with Eve, but with Adam. For in the garden, God did not say to Eve, where are you? He said to Adam, the man, where are you? And the Bible makes it clear that it was Adam who represented the human race. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What is more, when men and women are made new creations in the Lord Jesus, when we're born into God's family, men are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And women are told to be subject to their husbands as the church is subject to the Lord Jesus. So what Paul is saying here, and it's so straightforward, you can't argue with the logic of it, that the subordination of women, therefore, arises out of God's order of creation. Verse 7 and 8, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. 
For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Now, in case we're just wriggling a little and saying, well, you know, I don't go along with this, I have to ask this question in passing. Who knows better than our Creator what is for the good of the human race? Now, Paul argues, therefore, from principles from God's order in creation. He doesn't argue from the culture of his day. Forms of head covering may be aspects of culture, but not the principles behind them. So what we've established then is that God's order in creating man first was not an accident, but God's deliberate purpose. Now I want to qualify that in this way. That is not to give men a false sense of superiority or authority. It was in order that men might be beneficial to the human race, as women were to be. And if men have ever interpreted this leadership function in terms of dictatorship or being authoritarian, they're in the wrong and they must answer to God for the abuse of their position. The woman is to be subject to the man as man is to be subject to Christ. And whatever our culture or the contemporary trends this purpose of God must be recognized and applied. This order of things is not the result of the fall of man. It was something God built in to the well-being of men and women. Now, I have to admit that subordination is not a popular word. And it's open to misinterpretation. Subordination is not to be regarded as inferiority or implying disrespect to those who are subordinate. That is almost certainly why Paul begins with the Lord Jesus. The truth that God the Son recognizes the headship of the Father. The idea of headship and submission did not begin with Adam and Eve's fall into sin. It did not even begin with the creation of Adam and Eve. The idea of headship and submission began before creation in the relationship, the lovely relationship of the Son to the Father. The father has a leadership role, an authority to initiate and direct, that the son does not have. Think of the most familiar verse of the Bible. For God, that is the father, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The roles of the father and the son are different, both in creation and redemption. However, the Lord Jesus Though subordinate to the Father, is not inferior to the Father. What one of us would dare to say that as we understand the New Testament? The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in all their attributes and perfection. God the Father is not Christ's head in regard to his divine nature, but in regard to his office and work as mediator. Authority or headship belongs to the Father, not because he is wiser 
or more skillful in leadership, but it belongs to him because he is the Father. Now these truths are meant to guide us to understand the relationship of men and women and men's headship. Man is the head of the woman, not because their essential natures are different, but because God has set the man over the woman in the functions he is to fulfill for her benefit and the benefit of all. The man, though subordinate to the son, is the glory of God as the summit of God's creative work. And Paul is there referring to Genesis 1, where man was made in God's own image. And since man is the summit of God's creation, and that's what Genesis 1 and 2 tell us, he, is set, he sets forth God's glory as no other creature. Woman, though subordinate to man, is the glory of man. Without woman, man is incomplete. She reflects his glory being made likewise in the image of God. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 carefully, you see that men and women together constitute the image of God. So this is the proper order of things. It, it takes some of the, the difficulty out of the word subordinate if you recognize that Paul is talking about a proper order. I mustn't get sidetracked, but I think you will agree with me that human relationships in our society and probably throughout the world are in a pretty wretched state. And when God's order is rejected or neglected, there is disorder and chaos. Now, the second step in Paul's argument is this. The proper order is to be reflected in conduct and behavior. The son, subordinate to the father, honors the father. In conduct, man, especially redeemed man, is to reflect the glory of God and is to behave always in the light of this relationship. Man is to behave as the Lord Jesus behaved. What was the most distinctive thing about the Lord Jesus? He loved. And so, biblical authority or leadership is authority to love preeminently. It will never be in conflict with love. And woman, particularly redeemed woman, reflects the glory of man and she is to act always in the light of her creation to be man's partner. She is to behave in joyful submission as the church does to Christ. Now, that's how it ought to be. Contemporary society suggests that men and women today can live in many ways without one another. I mean, I don't need to give illustrations of that. And that equality means that conventions and proprieties about relationships between the sexes may be abandoned. That clearly isn't true. And conversion and new birth do not mean that distinctions between the sexes are nullified. In fact, Paul says that in verses 11 and 12. The Lord, however, 
in the Lord have a woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Our being in the Lord, our being reconciled to God, does not alter the original order that God established for creation and male-female relationships. So don't let's throw away those lovely distinctions between men and women. In fact, being in the Lord should mean that we better fulfill God's original purposes, since they were very good, God said, from the outset. It was the entrance of sin that brought wrong ideas of subordination, of a wrongful exercise of authority. And verse 12 reminds us that man's dependence upon woman is as great as her dependence upon him. God has made that true so that men and women should be complementary to one another. And as Christians, Paul argues, we are to accept this principle in the life of the church. Submission is the expression of that subordination. The Lord Jesus joyfully submitted himself to his Father. In fact, when you come to 1 Corinthians 15, you come to the exciting passage where we're told that the great climax of salvation will be when the Lord Jesus hands over the kingdom that has been achieved by his death, by his cross, to the Father. And it makes this significant thing, says this significant thing, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God, that is the Father, may be all in all. So the great theme, object of the plan of salvation is the glory of the Father. That is the Son's delight. Man, when he behaves properly, submits himself to Christ. Woman, when she behaves properly, accepts men's leadership. It could be argued that this principle is particularly true of marriage. Paul may have that in mind. But I think what you have to say is that in every sphere of life there has to be leadership. In the relationship of marriage there has to be someone who takes the initiative And that responsibility rests properly with the husband. When, for example, parents die and there are children, it's natural for the oldest or the older son or oldest son to assume leadership. In a school, there has to be one head, never two. Now, I know that in schools you may have several heads, but there will always be one who has precedence. It's part of the natural order. And these are not principles of culture, but of God's ordering. Now the third part of Paul's argument is simply to underline that this proper order of relationships is not in conflict with equality and mutual dependence. The son is equal to the father. Men and women are equal 
in God's sight. Men and women are not independent of one another. True equality of the sexes should be found in the body of Christ as it's found nowhere else. Now, what of ourselves then, as we try and apply this to ourselves today? Well, the application of the principles may be different, but the principles remain the same. We're to remember God is a God of order. And that the divine order introduces this principle of subordination, order. It's neither wrong nor unnecessary, but a right and proper principle of life. And we're to reflect that in our behaviour, particularly let's take husbands and wives. In first century Corinth, um, head covering was a symbol of a woman's relationship to her husband. So it raises the question that some may be asking, should a wife wear a head covering or hat in church? That was the question that a few decades ago people were asking. Well, the answer is best expressed as follows. I believe she should please her husband in what she wears in church. All right, you say, what should an unmarried woman wear? Well, she must judge for herself. But at the same time, she must be guided by what is regarded as propriety. And Paul says in verse 13, judge for yourselves. You've got to use your own judgment in these matters. A woman's motive, whether married or unmarried, must not be to please herself, but to please the Lord. Now, I mustn't just gloss over verse 10 and the reference to angels. It's difficult because we're not given any other passages that cast light upon it. But angels always represent God and are guardians of the created order. And the implication seems to be, in the light of what Paul says in verse 3, that the angels, and I believe in angels, that they are offended when we neglect God's principle of order. What we know as women's lib has clouded and confused some basic and essential issues. Equality does not mean that men and women have identical functions. It sounds so obvious to say that, and yet it's so important. Equality doesn't mean to say that we disregard what we call proprieties, renewed in the Lord Jesus, in a right relationship with God, men and women should have tremendous respect for one another. The fear behind the word subordination is that you're always afraid that the person who is subordinate may be wrongly treated by the person who has authority. But Christian love which is the mark of a renewed man or woman, Christian love means that you ought not and will know that you should never go beyond what it is right to say or do. We must test our culture by the Bible, even if in fact we're regarded as politically incorrect. We must remember that not a few presuppositions of our own culture today are wrong and false. And I'd like to suggest, as I've applied this to myself, that a test of one's true 
godliness, spirituality, call it what you will, is our submission to God and to others. So I want to conclude by just asking these questions. How is it this evening with our submission to God? Submission to God is seen in our attitude to his word. I go to the Lord Jesus again. Listen to the Lord Jesus speaking in Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. He wakens me morning by morning to listen like one being taught. A submissive man or woman is someone who listens to what God says and says what God says, whatever society says. How is it with our submission? Men, how is it with your submission and mine to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we men under his authority? For if we're under his authority, we will never abuse it. Are you and I under his authority in our marriages? in our relationships. Wives, how is it with you and your husbands? Is there this principle of accepting leadership when leadership is necessary? Children here this evening, how is it with your submission to your parents? Are you rebellious? Do you say they have no right to tell you what time you should be in of a night or what you should do? Employees. How is it with you in your, with regard to your employer? The elders of the church here at the chapel. Are you in subjection to the Lord Jesus? When you meet, is it his voice that you want to hear and obey? The church members here. Are you in a relationship of submission and prayerful concern for those who lead you? As Christians, are we submissive to one another? It's an invaluable concept. It's a virtue. It's part of likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if this evening, and I don't ask this to be ungracious, but I wonder if you find yourself resentful of this principle. And if so, let me just ask, could it be because you've not yet become a Christian? Is it because you're unreconciled to God? Have you thought, well, you, I can live as I like? Have you been living as a tenant in God's universe without paying him any rent? Without recognising that he has every right to say what is the proper order in society? Have you perhaps thought you know better than God? You thought that it's just been the church's narrowness that it has certain ideas about behaviour between men and women, the morality. But do you really think that? Is that reasonable? No one lived a more submissive life than the Lord Jesus. And at the heart of the whole life of the Lord Jesus on earth was his submission to his Father a submission that meant him dying a cruel death, a sacrificial death, to be the propitiation for our sins, that is to bear 
God's righteous anger against our sin, our failure to submit to his government, to his will, to his laws. That we might have forgiveness. And from that death flows the possibility for you and me to be reconciled to this God whom sadly we've often chosen to ignore. And as we're reconciled to him, we find our eyes open to realize that life can make sense when we discover God's order. And when we discover God's order, our lives become ordered and complete. And it's only through that Lord Jesus Christ that it can happen. How is it tonight with my and your submission to God? Let's pray together.